people will remember you where you are original or notable, not necessarily your failure. I mean, I think people will remember your failures if they're extremely original and extremely influential. Welcome to the Conservative Curious Podcast. I'm your co-host, Jessica Dang, alongside my friend and co-host, Ani Pai. In this episode, we talk to Ryan Peterson, better known by his Twitter handle, Resonant Pyre. We both follow his account and wanted to learn more about the mystery man behind the tweets. What we discovered is that Ryan is a 19-year-old freshman at the University of Chicago, who's currently on leave from his studies due to the current pandemic. But that hasn't stopped him from learning. We talked to him about the tragedy of modern life, failing forward, and his advice for people starting on their intellectual journey. So Jess and I picked a few tweets, Ryan, that we would really like you to elaborate on because as we both know, you're very prolific. And some of the tweets, I almost wish you would have made like an essay or a longer form piece. You tweeted, modern life is impossible without a sense of the tragic. The next tweet was, you were Icarus, the new Soviet man and a thousand other forgotten dreams. And we were wondering if you could expand on that just a bit. I think the tragic part of modern life is that we have so much more knowledge and so much more access to various tools that we can see much further ahead and dream about the technological possibilities than anyone could before. And especially more concretely, it's not, we're just not imagining a, a heaven, we're imagining a utopia that we can try to create. So the tragic aspect is that we will inevitably not be able to reach it, or we will lose certain things along the way. Icarus is flying too close to the sun, his father makes it without him. <laughs> so the new Soviet man thing was more of a failure, really, than a, than a success in any respect. I guess I have in mind any sort of utopian technological goals that we can sort of picture, but we can't grasp within our lifetime. And I think we really do make sustained progress over a long period of time in some areas. But just for the individual, their horizons have been so vastly opened that there's a tragic sense compared to the pre-modern world where the horizons were more limited, but you could also make more sustained progress within those horizons because they were more limited. I was going to say the way that I think of it is that our means went up by like 10 times, but our dreams and expectations went up by like a, a thousand times. Now people want to colonize the universe before they would be lucky to get out of their town 500 years ago. We do spend a lot more time focusing on tragedy, which is the real shame in sci-fi. Like I love reading and watching sci-fi, but if I see something that's like too much of a dystopia now, I just have to turn it off. Like I couldn't watch Black Mirror. It just kind of got to me because it was just such a negative portrayal of everything that had been achieved. Sure, you know, there isn't always a utopia. I mean, the 20th century proves that. But to kind of say that everything that we've done so far is heavily negative, tragic, and bad for society is seems to be the modus operandi right now. You should have a sense to appreciate the tragic aspect. There's a failure mode where you just focus on that and sort of put yourself at the end of the tragedy. When the proper tragedy has a hero striving for a goal, and if he fails, he still strives for it. Yeah, and I think that there is something really beautiful about a tragedy or a failure too, you know? You know, everyone says they have no regrets, but I think recently I've taken more to that. There's that Peter Thiel line which where he says, show me a good loser and I'll show you a loser. And what that kind of refers to, I think a lot of people don't get that, but what it kind of refers to is that in a lot of areas of life, we, in our day and age, kind of worship failure now. It's like participation trophy, you know, oh, a B plus isn't bad. Sometimes it is better to kind of wish and settle for greatness. If you spend too much time focusing on, oh, you know, failure is good, then you're setting the bar way lower for yourself and settling for the moon when you could be going for the stars. 
Fukuyama had this idea that there were two drives uh, related to our society being based on liberty. And there's the drive for others to recognize you as an equal, and there's the drive for others to recognize you as being superior. And this is uh, expressed most prominently and benignly in our society with things like political competitions or even sports competitions, where there's a clear winner and a clear loser, and we recognize them as a, as a society formally as being superior. I think there's a good mean where you raise everyone up as opposed to just settling at one low level. More often, I've come across the mentality of avoiding failure or putting on this facade of everything's all right. Failure is also part of a process as well, but I think there's more of an obsession avoiding failure, but maybe I'm out of touch. I want to say that there's, there's kind of two sides to it. You can be so afraid of failure that you don't even strive for greatness, or you can make failures, but just sort of keep making the same ones and celebrate them and be fine with that. There's an Aristotelian means where I think that, yeah, I think you should be failing bigger and better each time. So it's sort of failing with a goal. What's the dream for your life? I definitely think I would like to research, write about certain ideas and come to understand them better. And also there's the idea of not just doing it, but enabling others to do it. Like say, if I'd been around before Wikipedia, I would have hoped that I could have helped to come up with an idea like that. It's underappreciated how brilliant uh, that was and how well they executed it. I'm fascinated by the creation of these digital public goods, like you were mentioning. I really loved Wikipedia growing up. LibGen is obviously amazing, but I would really love to fund these projects, right, of building like digital infrastructure. Fukuyama talks about how uh, having a common language is sort of driven by market forces. That was one of the things that helped create the nation, so to speak. The state sort of had to, in some places, had to come before the nation and help to build a common language among people. That's not just information per se, but the information needs to be communicated by a common language. One thing that I'm sort of curious in, how the algorithms we use in any social media platform from Twitter to Facebook could be better optimized for productive discourse than simply garnering attention and getting users. But in any case, I think we're seeing a lot of societal frustration. The incentives are all messed up. People are working on these like decentralized Twitters. There are a few that are kind of close, like Gab. But it's not decentralized, obviously, but history will go down and remember the fact of Twitter fact-checking Trump and that becoming like the beginning of the end of the decline and fall of the platform because you know when you give that authority it's almost you're more powerful than the new york times and all the other me- five big media corporations combined i've been meaning to get into urban a little bit i couldn't explain all the technical stuff if you ask me but i find something like that kind of interesting so Urbit is basically trying to rebuild the internet from the ground up using you look at internet history it was very path dependent and i think like It just kind of happened. ARPA, the beginning of, you know, even cloud technology, all of it is kind of linked through these various people and corporations. But what Urbit wants to do is kind of give the ownership back to the people. Curtis Yarvin, the founder of Urbit, said something that was very poignant, which was that what Bitcoin did to money and Ethereum, the second biggest crypto network, did to law, Urbit will do to land. And that's basically meaning like giving people back ownership of this digital land that we all help build, right? I mean, whether it's this podcast a newsletter, your writing, your thoughts, you know, you own all this stuff, but you should also have control of it. And currently people don't. So it's trying to give people back that ownership. I think there is a, um, a real justified anxiety about how people don't really have control over the content they consume. I don't think it necessarily comes from bad actors in itself so much as the algorithms used and promoting attention. 
I organized a tech lash discussion. Somebody described the internet as using the analogy of the industrial revolution and saying the internet is the information revolution. And just like those private companies and factories that bought their own land, they started polluting, the government had to step in. And what he was saying is it's time for the government to step in again and take care of the pollution on the internet. It's a very interesting idea. I guess I'm not sure whether this situation will be solved by a government intervention or it will be solved by people creating pl- private platforms that sort of uh, try to decentralize it on their own. Jessica's point was something I've been thinking about, and I think she said it in a good way, which goes back to this other thing where I was kind of like, we're completely okay with like child labor right now if we call them programmers. Like if you just call a kid a programmer, you know, it's like, oh, we're completely fine with seven-year-olds programming, but it's almost like you have these corporations telling people to almost indoctrinate their kids for their own end. I mean, if the kid wants to do it, that's great. But kind of like the consequences of increased screen use, of like the dopamine rush of using your phone, of like not being able to focus, like there's a reason why so many people who made their money in the tech industry capped their kids' screen time, famously Tomas Palihapitiya, who, you know, helped make Facebook, doesn't let his kids use a screen. What you said about um, child labor regulation, how there's pretty, I think there's fairly rigorous child entertainment laws in the context of like Hollywood, but now we have all these uh, freelance child entertainers. I don't know whether the parents permission or not visiting themselves on TikTok. What would it look like if the internet was decentralized and you started from scratch? I, uh, I've been meaning to look more into the history of the internet. We, uh, we would have to look into the forces that made it more centralized in the first place. Thinking about developing countries would be a very interesting place to develop some of these new technologies because... In developing places like, let's say, places that don't have internet connections spread throughout, you can lay new infrastructure, new groundwork. Sometimes uh, countries that are coming from sort of technologically behind can end up getting newer and more updated technological infrastructure than first world countries because they're sort of starting from scratch. They're not, they don't have to tear down a bunch of stuff from before and rebuild. One of the biggest differences would actually be if we had a decentralized internet that look at how many people were the first users of, let's say, Facebook or Twitter or Google even, and they never got rewarded for it, right? They took a lot of risk using something maybe with their time, maybe with their resources, trying to use Google or all these things help build it even through being maybe an open source contributor on things like Wikipedia. In a new way, we can kind of envision that if you do that, you know, you should get like handsomely rewarded for your risk. And that also gives you skin in the game to help make it better. And that's kind of why we don't really have many internet public goods or in my opinion, we should have way more and it should be a common field of study. Whereas right now it's just like funded by some charity arm of Bill Gates or something. For, for how big of an impact they've had, when you look at how the people actually that have built Wikipedia and essentially just are, are hobbyists and get uh, some sort of enthusiasm out of working on it, and then they build it to enormous heights, along with whatever random people come in to briefly make small edits and stuff. Um, but yeah, I think Bitcoin will probably be one of the, the main paradigms with what you mentioned of incentivizing early users. You know, you tweeted this other thing that I was hoping you could expand on as well. It made me think for quite a while where you said it's a little comforting that someone so brilliant could also be this embarrassing to themselves. Take heart. History will remember the triumphs, not the failures of your work. And you were referring to Nietzsche's story with, I believe, his lover at the time. Just remembering the, the rough sketch of the details, he had written a letter to her and gotten rejected or something along those lines. And then elsewhere, he had written some angry screed to a friend about how he will never marry and it's a waste of time and something like that. When you connect the two, it's transparently very, uh, very embarrassing romantic frustration displayed in public or to public to us. It's, it's an interesting case study because a lot of these thinkers, we have much more public access to all their thoughts than the other people considering them did in the moment. But it's almost like in the present day now, <laughs> we sort of, these things are sort of done in public as opposed to through uh, letters, the uh, Republic of letters, Republic of tweets nowadays. 
But in general, I want to say, intellectually speaking, when you're just struggling in public to, for ideas and stuff, people will not uh, remember the failures, but the triumphs. And in the end, they'll forget everything. Also, at the same time, people won't forget, won't forgive your mistakes in a way either. It's almost like the opposite. Like these days, it feels like they'll only remember your mistakes. That's why I guess I made this statement so that to comfort people that in the long term, it'll work out much better than it will, than, than the, the heat about certain interactions or statements will in the short term. Speaking of letters and how we have insight into these thinkers' minds just from reading their letters and their journals, I love reading journals. And one of the journals I, I'd read, I think, like a year and a half ago was Soren Kierkegaard's. One quote that I scribbled down in my notebook was when he said, that after my death, no one will find in my papers, this is my consolation, the least information about what has really fulfilled my life, find the inscription in my innermost being, which explains everything, and what more often than not makes what the world would call trifles into, for me, events of immense importance, and which I too consider of no significance once I take away the secret note which explains it. With the Nietzsche letter, it might appear to us a certain way, but we will never know what he was really thinking when he wrote those things. It's hard to square the fact that, like you said, somebody so game-changing at the same time could very much lack this other thing that we take for granted. And Charles de Gaulle had that line, you know, graveyards are filled with indispensable men. And even now, if we only, you know, if you had to ask somebody, like, how much do they know about Nietzsche's love life in comparison to the birth of tragedy, uh, Ece Homo, and it would be like, you know, obviously very lopsided on the side of philosophy. So that just made me think, like, in what areas could, you know, I triple down on what I'm good at and kind of maybe let, leave the rest. People will remember you where you are original or notable. Nietzsche's uh, failures are, uh, I guess you said, all too human in that sense, that it's something that, well, it's not surprising, even if it, uh, it feels jarring compared to the great heights that he got to in his intellectual work. That people will, in the long-term uh, legacy you're passing down is what you contributed, not necessarily your failure. I mean, I think people will remember your failures if they're extremely original and extremely influential. Failing in the realm of ideas in a notable way can be quite interesting and useful, I'll say. Failure in that sense is almost a success. That idea of anti-success, where it's not necessarily you failed, but you did something so extraordinarily, not necessarily bad, but just off the mark, is also, I think, a very high form of intelligence. Like, to just go conceivably out of the box, and maybe you, like we said before, like, my take on failing is, like, if you do the same thing that someone else has done and you've done it badly, it's like, you know, you should have prepared more, but... If something crazily goes wrong and you ignite some other area of discovery because you failed in that way, that's, I think, like top notch. One thing I think that is a, is a good thing for people starting out, obviously, we're all standing on the shoulders of giants. If we can help other people get to that point, too, by helping explain and uh, contextualize other great thinkers' work, that in itself is useful. Helping other people reach that baseline is, I think, very valuable. What advice would you give to someone who was younger than you who wanted to create their own intellectual journey? Like, where do they start? A good thinker or a good writer is almost like a life raft in that sense that if you find something out there, you can sort of go from there. People will give citations, people will have influences, and you can sort of just climb that, um, that tree. More important than ideas is relationships with people that have an anywhere similar interest, both that are adjacent to you that you can learn with and that you can learn from. The funny thing is the, the life lessons don't have to be very, uh, very lofty or even complex. It can just be literally anything that you just sort of find interesting and then go from there. Yeah, the way I treated it was 
like you can't go to dessert, which I imagine were the blogs before you've actually had dinner, which were like these like foundational texts because so the best blogs, you know, we're kind of in a blog recession or a blog drought right now where Substack and things help, but it's nothing like, you know, when the internet was made in, and then the 2000s expanded it where it was just everyone had a blog and everyone was just blogging all the time. And it's very hard to connect these tiny morsels when you don't even have the big picture. And that's always what these like great books did for me and probably for you and Jess too. And that's one reason why I think personal relationships are very uh, important because just starting a blog but with no relationships, people with small ideas, uh, it would have been very lonely and possibly discouraging to just sort of blog to no one. Even like tw- uh, an audience of 20 good people is, uh, is really valuable. It's a complete zero to one from having no one. Tyler Cohen's Emergent Ventures actually fund people who have unique ideas on a blog. And for example, Bern Hobart, who's the founder of The Diff, but before worked at a bunch of hedge funds. And one of his friends got a grant to kind of write a book based off just like a few blog posts they had written. And, you know, to kind of fund people for their thoughts is like, I think the future of media in some respect. You know, a blog, even if you don't have a huge audience, is a really important part of that because it's almost like a proof of work. Obviously, Twitter does something for that. From the reading group I was in, one of the ladies there worked at the Mercatus Center. She, she liked my interest, so to speak. And she was like, okay, I'll send out your resume to uh, people that I know of that might need like a research assistant for something. Since I, I didn't, wasn't, didn't have anything going on, I was going to work for free. I still haven't gotten anything back, but that's because I assume it's just hard to find people looking for that kind of thing now. But nonetheless, I really appreciate that. And that was a really cool opportunity just from someone that I met through a Twitter, basically. Certainly, and I think Twitter is a good starting point, but not the not going to be the main show in terms of proof of work. Something like a blog or more personal conversations will be. So I'm looking forward to doing more of that. I wouldn't be surprised to see tweeting as a profession in the next few years. There are already social media managers, maybe, but it's very different to have like a consultant who has the leverage for like putting out these thoughts increases. You know, people like yourself who maybe are super interesting and they just kind of like let you take care of it. And uh, I guess to a part of it, it's the brand, but it's also on the other side, it's like the luxury of having you there, kind of like Peter Thiel and Eric Weinstein, right? Just a smart guy in the room who's, you know, writing and thinking about things. Yeah, it's certainly quite interesting. I really didn't get into it for any any, uh, monetary reasons so much as just to explore some ideas and think with other people. You know, Substack also does something similar now where they'll just, they've been giving grants to new researchers and I don't even think you have to pay it back. So it's like, you just get some money to get you started. And especially with people who like Matt Taibbi, who was at the Rolling Stone, wrote about finance and a bunch of other things, now moved his platform to Substack. Mm -hmm. And I just love the trend of like, you know, it's like the New York Times kind of eating itself from the inside because you train these people and then they leave. Like human capital is the future of media in that respect. And they're more like entrepreneurs than they are, you know, part of a centralized face publisher. I think I saw that you tweeted you thought it would be a cool job to read and write summaries for Blinkist. Well, that wouldn't necessarily be the most satisfying job in the, in the long term. I don't think I'd want to stay there, but I like reading a lot and I like thinking about it. So I don't actually know how entry level is. I even looked it up. I don't think they were hiring and I could find it. If, they, if someone's listening and get me one of those jobs, I would, I would love to have it. I think I could do it fine. Yeah, but I, I was thinking in terms of entry-level jobs, that sounds like something I'd enjoy. Because the one I have right now, because like I said, I got a, uh, went through a family member that happened to work there. And was like, well, we have this. I'll help you out. I've been doing real work, but I don't necessarily know how long that will um, they'll have stuff for me. So I've been steadily applying to more large operations from Ralph's to, uh, to um, things of that nature. That's a unique quirk about you, I guess, your current employment versus your interests. Is there anything else that you think people wouldn't know even after they meet you? I would really say that the most important things that I, I would like people to know about me are more the things that you just show than can say, because the things that just sort of arise from sustained interpersonal interaction over time, like say things like 
trustworthiness or dependability. But it's less something you could say, more that emerges from sustained personal interaction or working together and things like that. I would say that the more important stuff just tends to be stuff that shown. You never told me. I'm curious, like, what is your new job actually like besides ordering Rubios? Oh, um, yeah, I, uh, it's actually it's a trading company, Flywood. I, I have a family member there who's told me about it, and I've been doing some sort of low-key part-time stuff. It, honestly, I'm sort of like a, a bit of a handyman in the sense that, like, like a few weeks ago, I helped repaint their doors instead of hiring the usual professional they did. Uh, they just told me how to do it, and then I did it for a little bit cheaper. We think of Ryan lovingly as a neat. That's N-E-E-T, which stands for not an education, employment, or training. What's a neat? Think dilettante plus flaneur plus a sprinkle of genius, like Buckminster Fuller. Or think of it as a Twitter profile with an old master portrait of a young boy juxtaposed with masterful tweets about searching for truth. That's resonant pyre. That's a neat. It's my birthday today, actually. I'm 19 now, so... Wow. You're getting to be a grandpa. 